If you have your Bibles, take them and turn to the book of uh, 2 Kings, uh, 2 Kings chapter 2. Uh, and if you're visiting with us or this is your uh, first time uh, in one of our services, what we do here is we simply take a book of the Bible or a certain section of the Bible, we work our way through it. Um, part of that is um, it allows us to cover uh, a lot of what's in the Bible. Part of that is we bump up against some things that are difficult to hear sometimes and even harder to explain. But uh, rather than skip over them, we give it a shot. And um, by that, I don't mean that flippantly. I mean that we take it seriously and we say, God, help us to understand why you have included certain things in your word. And so today it might be self-evident to you as we read this text to maybe what I'm saying about. Saying about. 2 Kings chapter 2, uh, verses 19 to 23, and, or 19 uh, to the end of the chapter, verse 25. And uh, we finish with this section of Scripture about the beginning of Elisha's ministry. Now the men of the city, that's Jericho, the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. They went Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. He went up from there to Bethel. And while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore forty-two of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. Somebody want to take my place this morning? (laughs) Yeah, we'll work our way through it. This text is really a tale of two cities. It's a tale of Jericho, and it's a tale of Bethel. And we could write two headlines over these cities that, that maybe would um, draw us in or summarize what's going on. The first headline might be something like this. Salt, thrown in poisoned water, city can drink again. Or maybe we might come to a headline like this. God sends two she-bears among a mob, of, uh, a mob of boys, killing 42 of them. Behind both of those headlines, we know there's a story. And if we just sit with the headlines, as many of us do today, and we read these, our blog and our, our news feeds, and we get headlines, and we don't read the rest of the story. We just go to work or the water cooler. We're like, hey, man, did you hear about this? God cursed 42 boys, and they were mauled by a bear. And we just talk about that as though God is really a bully. But there is a backstory to both of these. And the backstory is found by understanding a little bit of biblical history, which we will spend a few moments about this morning. But particularly in regard to the second uh, city, Bethel, there's this one word that is absolutely critical to understanding why God did what he did in Bethel. And that is the word covenant. The word covenant. Covenant is one of the most important words in the Bible, and you might have never heard covenant before, never thought of it before, but the notion of covenant is part of God's storyline. 
And when you understand covenants and what God is doing with his people, and you understand where God is going with those covenants, then the Bible makes more sense. For instance, this Lord's table. Do you know that this Lord's table is about a covenant? It's about an everlasting covenant that we enter into through Jesus Christ that will never, ever be broken. And that helps us understand the death and the resurrection of Jesus and what happens when we are born new. We are then made part of a new covenant. And so covenants are the backbone of the story of God. They're the backbone of the story of the Bible. Just like covenant is the backbone of the story of any marriage. For in marriage, a husband and wife choose to enter into a covenant with one another, and they make binding promises to one another, pledging their loyalty and faithfulness for as long as they live. So if we grasp how the Scriptures fit together, or if we can't grasp how the Scriptures bind together, if we lack clarity about the covenants that God makes with His people, then we will have a hard time understanding a lot of the Scripture. So what is a covenant? Well, a covenant is a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to each other. Fairly simple. It's a chosen relationship in which two parties make a binding or make binding promises to each other. And so throughout the Bible, God has chosen to relate to His people through covenants. I will do this for you, and in return, you will do this for me. It was a common way for rulers in the ancient Near East to relate to their subjects. If you uh, read history and go back two, 3,000 years, and a particular king or a ruler in a particular area would conquer a group of people, then he would come before that people, and he would often say, okay, I'll make a covenant with you. He had delivered them from bondage. He had delivered them from captivity. He had delivered them from another ruler, and he wanted to get their allegiance with them. And so the king would promise to act with mercy towards them or promise to act in a certain way towards them. And they, in turn, then would promise to act in a way to that king. There would be this relationship that they would choose to enter into which was bound with certain promises or obligations. If they rebelled, then that covenant was broken. And the king could then act with harshness on those people. So too with the people of Israel. God made a covenant with them. Actually, he made a number of covenants with the people of Israel. But God made a covenant with the people of Israel. That he would bind himself to them and do certain things. And in response, they would bind themselves to him and respond in a way of obedience. What we find about the prophets then, and this is where Elijah and Elisha come in, is prophets in the Bible are often what we would call covenant enforcers. They were, sign of, they were sort of like God's gift to the people to remind them of the covenants that they had entered into. And so the covenants would often be sent to rebellious people in particular. And they would go to this rebellious people and they would say, listen, do you remember God's covenant with you? Do you remember the promises that, that you have entered into with God? Do you remember that when you, that when you entered into a relationship with God, when, when God came and delivered you out of Egypt... He was the God who bought you into freedom and brought you into freedom. He says, okay, I will do this for you. In response, you do this for me. That's what the Ten Commandments are. They're part of the covenant that God made with his people. And so the prophets would go among the people and they would say, hey, you guys are going off track. You're rebelling. 
You better come back into the relationship with God and stay in line with the covenant that you have made and that God has made with you. Behind the notion of covenant, though, is the Word of God. It's the Word of God which is binding. It's the Word of God which is sure. It's the Word of God which is true. It's the Word of God which is powerful. It's the Word of God which is effectual. There is no other world in this universe like the Word of God. It is a living Word. It is an enduring Word. It is a perfect Word. It will always accomplish what God says it will do. Always. It will never fail. That's why we can put our trust in the Word of God. That's why we hope in the Word of God. That's how we know God is real. Because when He speaks, what He says happens. And the history of our world is a history of God who speaks and of things that happen in response to the Word of God. Isaiah notes this about God when God speaks to him. He says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in that for which I sent it. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And so behind the covenants that God makes with his people are a sure and certain and reliable word, both in its promises and in its judgments. God's word will never, ever fail to accomplish what he purposes in it. So with that kind of background, the background of covenants and the background of the Word of God, we come to these two cities. The first is Jericho. And here, God speaks a word of blessing. But behind it first is a pronouncement of curse. And so it helps to just understand a little bit of the background of Jericho before we get to the text here. Um, We pick up Elijah now. He's made his way to Jericho. He's crossed the Jordan River. He's whacked the water with his mantle. It's split aside. He's walked through it. And now he's in Jericho. Jericho is just west of the Jordan River at the top of the the Dead Sea. And uh, it's a city that has a history. If you've grown up in the church um, or are familiar with some of the stories of the church, you'll remember about the city of Jericho. It was the first city that the people of Israel encountered when they entered into the promised land that God was going to give them. It was a huge city with massive, massive walls around it. And God says to Joshua, who's the leader of the army, He says, listen, this is what I want you to do. For six days, I want you to take all the fighting men of Israel. I want you to march around the city. Just once, every day for six days. Don't say a word. Don't blow a trumpet. Don't do nothing. Just walk around it and go back to camp. But on the seventh day, he says, I want you to march around the city seven times. And when you've accomplished seven turns, I want the priests to blow their trumpets. And I want all the men in the army to shout. And you read the story, and what happens when that did is the walls just disintegrated. God just said to the atoms, no more, and they just let go, and the walls just came crashing down. And the army of Israel went in and destroyed the city of Jericho. At the end of that uh, battle, Joshua's looking over the destruction that had taken place, and he says this, The man who undertakes the rebuilding of this city, Jericho, is cursed before the Lord. He will lay its foundation at the cost of his firstborn, and he will set up the gates at the cost of his youngest. We say, on what basis? What gives the right for Joshua to say something like that? Well, on the basis of the Word of God, by the authority of God, by the authority of the God of the Word. And they might say, well, who can ever test the validity of such a curse? Really, like, really? 
he announces this curse, and how are we ever going to know if that ever takes place? Maybe these were just words. Maybe there's words spoken in the joy of the battle as he looked out over the damage on this city. But many, many, many years later, under the reign of a king named Ahab, he was a king that a number of years we look back, and he was a king who despised the word of God. He was a king who disregarded the word of God. He was a king who replaced the word of God with the word of uh, the Baals and the Ashtoreth. He was a king who turned his nose up at the word of God. And not only did he do it for himself, but he led his people in rebellion against the word of God. His attitude to the word of God is epitomized when one day a builder in his kingdom comes to him and says, I want to pull a building permit for Jericho. The king says, have at her. And this is all that's said in 1 Kings chapter 16. In his days, that is the days of Ahab, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Ibiram, his firstborn, and set up his gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. What would possess an individual to so ignore the word of God? What would possess one to have such disdain for the word of God that they would outright defy it? So that's the background of Jericho. It had a curse pronounced on it. So we come back to Jericho now. And we find it has a problem with its water. It's poisonous. And when you take verse 19 and 21 together of of 2 Kings here, you find that it's when it says the land is unproductive, what it is saying is that the occupants of the land, the cattle, and particularly the women, are unproductive. Because it says when he heals it that the women and the animals no longer miscarried. And so, as the people had been drinking that water, and as the animals had been drinking that water, it was just wreaking havoc amongst their reproduction. And so, the men of Jericho come to Elisha in dire straits. And notice the respect with which they hold Elisha, my Lord. That's a sign of respect. That's a sign that they affirm that he is now God's prophet. That's a sign that they believe that God speaks through him and that God works through him. And so they come to him and said, My Lord, my Lord, what are we going to do? And so Elisha asks for a new bowl, and he fills it with salt. And they take him to the spring, um, the source of the spring, and he throws the salt in it, and he says, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. To which the writer adds, So the water was healed to this day according to the word that Elisha had spoken. The point is not the new bowl or the salt that was thrown in the source of the spring. The the, the point is the word of God. The power of the word of God. The power of the word of God that comes through the prophet's mouth. It's the same that happened in the desert. Uh, years earlier, when they came to Moriah, they couldn't drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we going to drink? He cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. So too, the poisonous waters of Jericho are healed. 
it would seem that not only was there a curse upon the one who would rebuild the city, but there was a byproduct of that curse in the sense that all the water of that land or the ground around it was also cursed. And so we think, what a powerful word. What a powerful word that behind the curse was the power of God. What a powerful word that came through the mouth of Elisha. I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage will come from it. What a permanent word. So the word of God has been healed to this day. And what a promising word. And I think the promise in the word is that in this miracle, we get a glimpse of the new heaven and the new earth. We get a glimpse of what is a foretaste that is awaiting for us. In, in this word, we get a glimpse of what God will do at the end of this age as he ushers in the new heavens and the new earth, the power of the word of God to cleanse us and to refresh us and to remove the curse from us and to bring blessing instead of the curse, to purify us, to make us healthy forever. And that's the application, I think, of this word of grace. That through God's prophet comes a word of grace to the people of Jericho. Do you ever think about this in relation to God? About his word of grace to us? We just shared the table of the Lord. Is this not a place where we give thanks for the grace of God? For the God who has removed the curse that was pronounced on us? because of our sin and has removed it in Christ and has healed us? And is not creation longing to be freed from a curse? And will not that curse be removed when God comes back at the end of this age and recreates a new heaven and a new earth? See, I find sometimes that the Curse of sin and shame often lingers in our souls even though we have experienced forgiveness. What a word of hope this is to any who may be here that just linger in that area. To hear the word of blessing from God. Do you ever think that an act that you committed years ago or even confessed still hangs over your head? Still brings about a curse even in your life? That while God has accepted you, it feels like he has never, that he never gives you eye contact. You need to hear the word of the Lord. You need to hear the grace of God once again. And as one pastor suggested, we need to be dragged back to Jericho. We need to hear this declaration. Here is your God, the one who binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by him. Jericho reminds us that God is a God of grace, that God is a God who can replace his curse with a word of blessing. Secondly, we come to Bethel, and here we have a word of judgment. What do we do with a place like Bethel? One of the things that we know about Bethel is that Bethel has become a focal point of rebellion against God. And it started about 80 years earlier when Jeroboam decided that he was going to give the people of Israel a new religion. If you have time, sometime today, preferably, or even this week, read 1 Kings 12 and 13, and maybe Leviticus chapter 26. It will give you some background. But Jeroboam was a king who said, God, I don't want you in my life. God, I don't trust your word. God, I'm going to do it my way. It was subtle. 
it wasn't an in-your-face rebellion necessarily. It was a, it was a, it was a subtle rebellion where, where Jeroboam said, you know what, I, I'm going to kind of do it my way and, and I'm going to bring the people of Israel into sort of my orbit and we're going to just have our own sort of religion, our own bull religion. If you know the story, uh, at the end of Solomon, the kingdom is divided between two kings, Rehoboam in the south with the tribe of Judah and Israel in the north with the ten tribes. Jeroboam was over Israel in the north, and Rehoboam was over um, Judah in the south. And what was happening was Jeroboam was afraid that the people in his kingdom were going to make their way back to Judah because, after all, that's where God had established his temple. That's where God had established a priesthood. That's where God had established dates and times of how the people should worship. And so he was afraid that his people that were under his rule were going to trickle their way back at the times of worship to the temple of God. They were going to kind of like it. They were going to find God again. And they were going to give their loyalty to Rehoboam rather than him. And so he hatched this plan. He said, you know what? I'm going to set up my own religion, my own bull religion. And so what he did was he selected two cities. He selected Dan and he selected Bethel. Bethel was a place that had incredible associations. It was a place where Abraham had worshipped the Lord. Bethel was a place where, if you know the story of the Bible, Jacob had gone to sleep one night and a ladder had gone up to heaven and uh, he had met God and uh, then finally they made a promise and a covenant and there he said the presence of God is surely in this place. Dan was a city where Moses' grandson was priest for many years. So what a logical place. It had wonderful connections with the history of Israel, wonderful connections with the past of Israel. This makes sense. We'll use Bethel and Dan as two new places of worship. And then he made two bulls, and he put one in either city. And we think, hmm, isn't there a time when Israel was enticed with bulls before? Do you remember when they were coming out of Egypt and Moses had gone up to the mountains and they came to Aaron and they said, we need a God. So Aaron took their stuff and he says, I just threw it in the fire and out came this calf. And they worshipped this calf and had an orgy around it. Jeroboam's call to worship in his newly fangled bull religion was the same as Aaron's call to worship. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Bethel was now the point of state-sponsored idolatry. Bethel had become a place where the word of God was ignored. Jeroboam set up his own priesthood, he set up his own dates for worship. He set up his own place of worship in defiance of the Word of God, in rejection of the Word of God. And then you read chapter 13, and I, won't have, I don't have time to go through it, and I don't want to sort of distract us. You've got to read 1 Kings 13, though, in line with what's going on in Bethel, because 1 Kings chapter 13 does describes this bizarre set of circumstances that take place at Bethel. And many of the things that take place there are, are almost impossible. Well, there are no answers. The, the narrator doesn't give us answers. So we say, well, how do we make sense of it? Well, if you read 1 Kings 13, you find the Word of God, the commands of God, God said, just dominates the verses. It's all about the Word of God. 
And the three primary characteristics or characters in that, Jeroboam, Jeroboam, a young priest from Judah, and an old priest, it describes their responses to the word of God. Jeroboam had opportunity to hear a word of mercy, and he despised it. The young prophet from Judah could find safety in the word of God, and he ignored it. The old priest became a the word of God became his profession, and he abused it. And so what we find is that in Bethel, Bethel is a place that is turned against the word of God. Bethel is a place that is characterized by despising the word of God. Sometimes we refer to Las Vegas as Sin City. Well, we could refer to Bethel as hatred for God's word city. It was just an atmosphere where who cares what God has said. And then there's one more verse that just helps us paint the background for Bethel. Remember I read that text about Hiel, who rebuilt Jericho at the cost of his oldest and his youngest sons? Do you know where Hiel was from? It says, in Hiel of Bethel. He was a man who himself despised the word of God. And so we find that Bethel is a place characterized by rejection of the word of God, by full-on idolatry. And so then we come to the text itself. It tells us here that in verse 21 or verse 23, he went up from there to Bethel and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city. It's a small detail, but I I think it's an important detail. This was an intentional attack by a group of young boys. It wasn't that, that Elisha was walking through the city and he rounded a corner and all of a sudden there was this gang or this mob of young boys and he just found himself in this predicament. No, he had already gone through the city or bypassed the city and this group of boys deliberately, intentionally left the city to go after the prophet of God. Small boys. I think this is what shocks us. Most likely a group of boys that would have been 10 to 12 years old. By no means innocent children. By no means, um, or by all means, having the ability to sin. And it says they jeered at him or they mocked him. Mocking is never a good thing in Scripture. It's always described in the context of sin and unbelief. And you can't miss the connection here to mock the prophet of God The covenant defender was to mock the God of the prophet. To mock the prophet of God was to despise the word of God that was spoken from the lips of the prophet. Thirdly, they say, go up, baldhead. Go up, baldhead. Well, what are they saying? There's at least a couple ways to maybe think that through. That verb, go up, is the same word that's used to describe uh, Elijah when when he went up into heaven. So it could be that they're saying, you know, Elisha, just go away like Elijah did. I just wish God would take you up into heaven if there is such a God and you would just leave us alone. Or it could be their way of saying, you know, we want nothing to do with you. Get lost. Just keep going. Come on, scoot, scoot, scoot away. And as they hassled him along the way, he turned around and he cursed them in the name of the Lord. 
I'm not sure what that look would have been like. I'm not sure what the tone of his voice would have been. It's clear, though, that he was not the one who caused the mauling. It was God. It was God that made the curse effectual, just as God broke the curse that was upon Jericho. And two she-bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youth. Just a couple side things that um, I find fascinating. Is God uses animals to often accomplish His will. That animals respond to God. And that makes sense because God created them. God made them. So we have a donkey that speaks, for instance. We have snakes that bite. We have a whale that swallows. We have a fish that pays the taxes of one of His disciples. God controls this world, even the animals that He has created. Ravens that fed Elijah. Lions that kill or don't kill. O king, God, shut up the lion's mouths so they did not bite you. Secondly, when you read this text, do you ever wonder what kind of bears these were? Grizzly bears? Brown bears? Black bears? Panda bears? Koala bears? You know what kind of bears they were? They were covenant bears. They were covenant bears. This was a consequence of persistent disobedience to God's covenant. And here we come back to understanding covenant in the Bible. Because in Leviticus chapter 6, Moses outlines for the people of Israel the promises and the blessings of covenant keeping and the warning and the curses of covenant breaking. And in verse 21 and 22 of Leviticus, it says this, Then if you walk contrary to me, and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. And I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children, and shall destroy your livestock and make you few in number. This may get necessarily easy, but it puts it in a context. This was not a random act of anger by God. This was not a random curse by Elisha the prophet. This was the Word of God spoken hundreds of years earlier coming to bear upon the actions of those young boys. And one more observation. It says the bears mauled 42 of them. That implies that there was a whole bunch more of them. There was a whole bunch of them that got away. This just wasn't a small group of people or young boys that came out to hassle Elisha. It was a great number of them. So how do we apply this? We're already hinting at it. Here is a word of judgment. Here is a reminder to us that we ought never disrespect the word of God. Here is a reminder to us that the prophet of God represents God. That the words that the prophet speaks reflect the God who sent him. God is real. God has spoken. He means what he says, and he says what he means. And so with these two cities, we hear a word of salvation and a word of destruction. We see God who, in the one city, is at work with grace, and another city is at work with destruction. And it leads me to ask and to say, well, you need to ask this as well. What is your response to the word of God?
What is your attitude to the Word of God? What do you believe about the living Word of God? What do you believe about the God who speaks? What is the attitude of the Word of God in your home? Or in your business? Or in your life? Is it ignored, despised, simply given lip service to? Or is it received with gratitude? Is it humbly submitted before? Is it accepted as the life-giving word that it is? What attitudes, do, what attitudes to the word of God do your children see in you? As parents or as their grandchildren? What does your spouse see in you as you respond to the word of God? May we live in Jericho, not in Bethel. These two cities, as I said, point us ahead also. They point us ahead to the end of this age. And they are a foretaste of things to come. The city of Bethel reminds us that a continued rejection of the Word of God, a continued rebellion against the Word of God, a continued dis disdain towards the Word of God, will lead to judgment. And it won't be a surprise judgment because God has warned us again and again and again what will happen when we reject and defy His Word. The city of Jericho, on the other hand, is a foretaste of the incredible renewal to come and the grace that we have already received as a people. The restoration of all things that will come at the end of this age when God will recreate this heavens and this earth and Make it without sin and without a curse. And notice what Re Revelation says about the new heaven and the earth where there will be no curse. It says, where there will flow a river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, the leaves and the trees were for the healing of the nations. Take us back to Jericho. The waters were healed forever. And ever. So I just want us to hear the living word of God again. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. What will you do with that word? Or we come to Acts the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Do you want to know if the word of God means anything or has any power? He raised Jesus Christ by the power of his word. One final one. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That is a word to stake your life on. Father in heaven, we come before you today. We come to this text and I thank you for the way that it points us not only back, but it points us ahead. Father, you don't just act randomly in our lives or in our world. Your word matters. 
I pray, Father, that it would matter for us. I pray that we would increasingly come to understand that we can stake our life on your word. In fact, so many in this room have done that. We endure all things because we know what your word says about the relief to come. We persevere with you because we know that at the end of the age, you will make us perfect and you will usher us into the new heavens and the new earth. We pray for our children and our grandchildren and for our neighbors that they might come to a saving knowledge of God because we know your word is true about judgment. Father, I thank you that you have given us your word. We don't have to blindly make our way through this world thinking, what in the world am I supposed to do now? But Father, you have described for us in this story what you have done, why you have done it, and what you are going to do. You have told us how to find our place in your story. Father, may we listen. May we obey. May we submit to it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.